Ladies and gentlemen, um, it's a great pleasure indeed for me to introduce uh, our speaker this evening, Professor uh, Suhail Bushri, who is um, many things, um, not least a fellow of the Temenos Academy and has been a fellow since the Academy was uh, founded by Kathleen Rain. He was a great friend of Kathleen for many, many years. He's uh, also these days a research Professor Emeritus at the University of uh, Maryland in the United States, uh, where he's been involved with the Center for International Development and Conflict Management for many years, and he still does a lot of great work there. The most recent work that he's been doing is uh, working with another fellow of uh, Temelos, uh, Professor David Cadman, who's here this evening, co-editing not one, but two collections of... Um, speeches and articles by our own royal patron. And um, they're rather special, not least that the first collection has just been translated by our speaker this evening into Arabic and will be published across the Arabic world, which I think gives you some uh, indication of, uh, of the high esteem in which uh, our own Prince of Wales is held by the Arab world. Um, I'm even minded to think that maybe at last new American presidents are following where he has led for a long time. Um, so Sahel has a great and distinguished career as a translator of Kat Gibran and W.B. Yeats and many other uh, literary greats. Um, and he's going to talk this evening about uh, sacred in literature. Um, I'm a mere student of this academy. Uh, I can only really adhere to one principle of Socrates, which is that uh, all I really know is what I don't know. And when I come to lectures here, um, that is kind of magnified quite dramatically for me, and I really do realise how little I know. When it comes to hearing Suhail speak, I find that he has this uncanny knack of revealing my ignorance in all its great majesty. <laughs> and I'm sure he's going to um, increase that scope by some acreage uh, this evening. What I do know is that when I leave tonight, um, I'm going to be, uh, as usual, fired by his enthusiasm. Um, and that is a very important word to consider, because it comes from the Greek, entheos, theos rather, which means in or with God. So when one does things with enthusiasm, um, then one does things with God. So to be fired by enthusiasm is to be fired by the presence of the divine. And I really can't think of any better way than describing Sir Hale. So, without further ado, I'd like to invite <coughs> him to give his lecture, which he's titled, Sages Standing in God's Holy Fire, The Poet and Spirituality. Sir Hale. Mr. Chairman, uh, you've taught me a lesson in humility this evening. <clears throat> this is what Eliot, I think one of the most remarkable lines, said the only wisdom we can acquire is the wisdom of humility. Thank you very much for accepting to be the chair of this evening. I'm greatly honored. And I am also indebted to my friend Tom Durham, who has in many, many times and over the years uh, come to read the poetry. He reads the real stuff. The rest is 
just a footnote, <laughs> which is my words. I want, uh, first of all, to dedicate this lecture to Stephen Overy. Stephen Overy is one of those rare human beings whose greatest achievement is service in silence. We're all in his dead. And this piece, when it will be published, it will be dedicated to him. I must also say that I received instructions from him the way this lecture should take form and shape. So I am also indebted to him. Uh, it is very kind of you all to be here tonight despite all the threats of the transport um, difficulties that are going to face you and so on. I apologize for having been the cause of any convenience. However, let's start. And uh, I just want to draw your attention to what appeared today in the Times. There's an article which I thought Edu, this is education, Babel, is turning pupils into customers. The encroachment of the corporate world on education. It is no longer the widening of the human mind, the elevating of the human spirit. It is numbers. <coughs> it's how can you make a kill. It's exactly the language of business. This lecture is exactly opposite of what education is all about today. So let's begin with an experience that my friend Tom will start. The Universal Prayer by Alexander Pope. Father of all, in every age, in every clime adored, by saint, by savage, and by sage, Jehovah, Jove, or Lord. Thou great first cause, least understood, who all my sense confined to know but this, that thou art good, and that myself am blind, yet gave me in this dark estate to see the good from ill, and binding nature fast in fate, left free the human will. What conscience dictates to be done, or warns me not to do, this teach me more than hell to shun, that more than heaven pursue. What blessings thy free bounty gives, let me not cast away, for God is paid when man receives, to enjoy is to obey. Yet not to earth's contracted span, thy goodness let me bound, or think thee Lord alone of man, when thousand worlds are round. Let not this weak, unknowing hand presume thy bolts to throw, and deal damnation round the land on each I judge thy foe. If I am right, thy grace impart, still in the right to stay. If I am wrong, O oh, teach my heart to find a better way. 
save me alike from foolish pride or impious discontent at aught thy wisdom has denied or aught thy goodness lent. Teach me to feel another's woe, to hide the fault I see, that mercy I to others show, that mercy show to me. Mean though I am, not wholly so, since quickened by thy breath, O lead me wheresoe'er I go, through this day's life or death. This day be bread and peace my lot. All else beneath the sun thou knowest if best bestowed or not, and let thy will be done. To thee, whose temple is all space, whose altar earth, sea, skies, one chorus let all being raise, all nature's incense rise. That's a 17th century Catholic poet writing this in England. It reminds me of uh, that great Ibn Arabi. لقد صار قلبي قابلا كل صورة فمرعا لغزلان ودير لرهبان وبيت لأوثان وكعبة طائف وألواح تورات ومصحف قرآني أدين بدين الحب أنا توجهت ركائبه فالحب ديني وإيماني. My heart is capable of every form, a pasture for gazelles, a monastery for monks, an abode for idols, and the votaries of the Kaaba, a place where I hold the Torah and the Quran. My faith and religion is love. Wherever it beckons me, I follow. <clears throat> there is a hadith, the Prophet Muhammad says underneath the throne of God lie treasures the keys to which are the tongues of poets the greatest paradox facing the writer in a treatment of spiritual themes is the task of attempting to express the in the inexpressible and to confine it in words J.R. Watson, in his study of Wordsworth, a poet who continually confronted this paradox, describes the presence of this inexpressible essence in life. Wordsworth's lifelong sense of the poet's duty, like a sacred calling, inspired him to reveal and interpret the inexpressible essence using words as the medium. Samuel Beckett also summed up something of the same message in a conversation we had in May 1987, not long before his death. He said, the word is immortal. The word continues. What has helped me to continue to write is my faith in the word. And if the word comes to an end, everything comes to an end. The word is an anchor. As he spoke these words, Beckett touched a page of the book in front of him in a manner which wordlessly conveyed a sense of the living word. The Logos found in many religious traditions, such as in St. John's Gospel. In the beginning 
was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Or in the words of the Hebrew prophet Isaiah, So is the Word that issues from my mouth. It does not come back to me unfulfilled, but performs what I purpose, achieves what I sent it to do. These words are mysterious as they are familiar. They intimate in poetic verse the presence of a divine and unutterable word that is the origin and ultimate founding principle of all things. In the words of Baha'u'llah, the word of God is the king of words and its pervasive influence is incalculable. It hath ever dominated and will continue to dominate <clears throat> the realm of being. The great being saith, The word is the master key for the whole world, inasmuch as through its potency the doors of the hearts of men, which in reality are the doors of heaven, are unlocked. Of course, this word, the master key to the hearts of men, is the divine word, the Logos, and is not to be confused with the words of ordinary speech. Though the words of ordinary speech proliferate and run on indefinitely, being combined and recombined in every possible arrangement, the divine word forever eludes men, silently transcending all that comes forth from the tongue or pen. Thus, in the Quran we read, if all the sea were ink for my sustainer's words, the sea would indeed be exhausted ere my sustainer's words are exhausted. And thus it would be if we were to add to it sea upon sea. The whole created world is an expression. The Logos, which is a manifestation of God, is only an image, a reflection, although in very limited ways, of our unknowable essence, which is God himself. This is beautifully and succinctly articulated by Ibn al-Arabi. When my beloved appears, with what eye do I see him? With his eye, not with mine, for none sees him except himself. In his celebrated 2002 work, Genius, Harold Bloom defines this quality as being the trait of standing both of and above its age, the ancient principle that recognizes and hallows the God within us and the gift of breathing life into what is best in every living person. While he concentrates solely on the Western tradition, he could likewise have mentioned, and unfortunately he didn't, Ibn al-Arabi and Ibn Sina of Arabia, Jalal al-Din al-Rumi of Iran, Kabir, Ghalib, Mirabai, and Tagore of India, Li Po, Tu Fu, and Lao Tzu of China, and Izumi, Shakibo, Basho, and Dogen Kigan of Japan. In all regions and religions, it is fair to say the presence of the divine is more readily experienced than described in words 
and the struggle to capture and define it is universal. The nature of the sacred is as it is is as elusive as it is powerful and the limited capacities of human perception can only sense it let alone depict it in a fragmented fashion the greatest of poets and visual artists cannot hope to capture the essence of the divine as socrates says of the divine realm beyond the tangible cosmos of this region beyond the skies no mortal poet has sung or ever will sing in such strains as it deserves indeed many religious teachings and myths of ancient civilizations contain warnings against attempting to perceive the full glory of divinity and they describe various dangers and punishments awaiting those who disobey some also present outright prohibitions against trying to render the sacred visible by human art for example we may recall simile consumed by fire for daring to ask zeus to reveal himself in divine form or psyche forbidden to see eros who visited under cover of darkness and threatened with losing him forever when she disobeyed until she proved herself worthy through her courage and faith the commandment against the making of grave images of for worship which the children of israel broke with such devastating results when they forged the golden calf in the book of exodus the ban imposed on the devout muslim on creating likenesses of any living being a privilege exclusive to god himself moreover the humility of the true artist makes him immediately aware that even the most gifted invariably falls short of the genius needed to capture the image of the supreme being except in the apocryphal story of the small child who announcing that she was drawing god and being told by her teacher that nobody knew what he was like covent confidently replied they will now in sacred literature we discover humanity's awareness of the relationship with the divine and its powerful experience of a yearning for the spiritual inspired poetry uses ordinary words in extraordinary ways that produce intimations of that eternal word that sustains all things the idea that the writing of true poetry requires a spark of something like divine possession is widespread in many civilization in its most extreme form this can lead to the poet being seen as temporarily or permanently mad we many we may remember the german poet friedrich holderlin who spent many years in confinement after losing his reason in 1806 at the age of 36 as well as john clare the english peasant poet whose lifelong struggle with adversity and oppression <coughs> reduced him to insanity and caused him to end his days in an asylum in 1864 we may also recall 
Robert Graves' description of Sappho in his collection of essays, The Crowning Privilege, pressed beyond the bounds of sanity by the double burden of incarnating the muse and expressing her divinely inspired utterances. Indeed, the inspiration of the poet is so powerful and all-consuming as to appear positively dangerous. This was not in the text, but I think it would be wonderful to read this part from Shakespeare. Sorry, to, to throw this on you right now. It starts here. The poet. Out here, it starts here. The lunatic. The lunatic, the lover, and the poet are of imagination all compact. One sees more devils than vast hell can hold. That is the madman. The lover, all as frantic, sees Helen's beauty in a brow of Egypt. The poet's eye, in a fine frenzy rolling, doth glance from heaven to earth, from earth to heaven, and as imagination bodies forth the forms of things unknown, the poet's pen turns them to shape and gives to airy nothing a local habitation and a name. Such tricks hath strong imagination that if it would but apprehend some joy, it comprehends some bringer of that joy. Or in the night, imagining some fear, how easy is a bush supposed a bear? William Shakespeare. This is no small part bound up with the magical function of language. The ancient Druids, for example, acted not only as guardians of the sacred tradition of the Celts, but as poets and teachers of an oral tradition too powerful to be trusted to writing because of the power which it gave its possessors to curse and blight as well as to bless and fructify. It might seem bizarre at first sight to claim common ground for Arabic and Irish literature. But both these cultures share an awareness of the lawful magic of poetry. In Arabic, this is known as as-sihr al-halal, which resides in the music and texture of words and transcends their immediate meaning. This becomes clear in the passages from the Holy Quran. So when the truth came to them from us, they said, this is surely clear enchantment. Oh, which is sahal halal. I, I wouldn't translate it clear enchantment. I would say lawful magic, but still, this is a translation. Yeats expresses this same vision in one of his plays, The King's Threshold. And I would have all know that when all falls in ruin, poetry calls out in joy, being the scattering hand the bursting pod, the victim's joy among the holy flame, God's laughter at the shattering of the world. Elsewhere, in the same poem, expressing the religious quality of all true poetry, yes, Yeats describes it as one of the fragile, mighty things of God. A concept close to the Arabic term Ijaz, language miraculously wrought, applied only to the Holy Qur'an itself, 
as the highest literary expression. These glimpses of the sacred transcend the boundaries of time and space, culture and tradition, and find further expression when Yeats's imagination enables him to enter the holy city of Byzantium. Not the city of the impetuous young driven by their senses, but a home of sages, singing masters of my soul, as Yeats described them, prophets and teachers of a higher wisdom, true poets surrounded and inspired by God's holy fire. The terms inspiration and enthusiasm both indicate ways of perceiving the state of the poet as receiving the breath or spirit of the divine which renders him capable of a special form of creativity or as becoming the dwelling place, however temporary, of a more than human entity. In such a state, the poet does not lose his reason but transcends it and becomes capable of a form of expression higher than that of ordinary mortals in which great truths may be revealed to the rest of humanity. The utterances of the Sibyl of Delphi were delivered in enigmatic verse in the trance-like state and the devotees of Dionysius, a god of poetry just as Apollo was, owed their intoxication to divine frenzy as much as to wine. In Plato's Phaedrus, Socrates aligns such prophetic possession with the divine madness of the poet and adds, if a man comes to the door of poetry untouched by the madness of the muses, believing that technique alone will make him a good poet, he and his sane compositions never reach perfection, but are utterly eclipsed by the performances of the inspired madman. Such inspired poetry has the power to shape the soul. The power of the word has been proclaimed in both religious and secular traditions the world over. But it is in poetry that mortal language reaches the ultimate limit of its power. Toth, the ancient Egyptian god of speech and writing, was later assimilated with Hermes in the figure of Hermes Trismegistus. In the Corpus Hermeticum, he is presented as stating that the very quality of the speech and the sound of Egyptian words have in themselves the energy of the object they speak of. Or, as another translation renders this passage, when the Egyptian words are spoken, the force of the things signified works in them. I find this is very true of Arabic, too. Arabic language is a, such a powerful language. Of course, I'm biased. But it is. Somebody, I was with a, a taxi driver who came from our part of the world, and then he was to, I was talking to him about the sanctity of the Arabic language. And then he said to me, he said, you know, even when you swear in this language, it doesn't seem like swearing. <laughs> I thought this was a wisdom that should be unbelief. Right. Among mortals, it is the work of the poet to harness the power of words, to illuminate the sacred. The sacred may reveal itself to poets who, like Thomas Hardy, reject conventional ideas of religious belief or practice. 
the deep pessimism which led him to open the bleak Eskilian conclusion of tests of the Devervilles and, the, and to be accused of blasphemy and immorality for the views expressed in his final novel, Jude Obscure, did not render him incapable of receiving and transmitting the message of the darkling thrush. That I could think there trembled through his happy good night air, some blessed hope whereof he knew, and I was unaware. Throughout the whole of human religious experience, poets have sought to reconcile the polar opposites of the sacred and profane. But no matter how widely separated they may at first appear, these two principles may be seen as leading to a common distinction, a core of a perennial philosophy, as defined by Johnson Shear in his article on mystical experiences as support for the perennial philosophy, he outlines that these, the thesis of the phenomenal world as the manifestation of a transcendental ground, human beings' capacity to attain immediate knowledge of that ground, the possession of a transcendental self, which shares the nature of that ground and the identification of this as the chief end and purpose of life. The poet's task is, among others, to assist in this process and, and enable its fulfillment by conveying in language a spiritual wisdom gained through direct experience. It is in this sense that Kathleen Rain wrote that like Blake, Yeats was a metaphysician for whom poetry was the language of spiritual knowledge. Inspired poetry originates in experience of the sacred and with the precise choice of word, the cadence of its flow and the rendering of symbolic images. It speaks directly to the core of the human soul. It insinuates its vision into the soul and opens the soul's eyes to the presence of the sacred within and around us. In it, in the words of Blake, the inspired poet opens the immortal eyes of the imagination with a capital I. I rest not from my great task to open the eternal worlds to open the immortal eyes of man inwards, into the worlds of thought, into eternity, ever expanding in the bosom of God, the human imagination. In opening our immortal eyes, the poet is also a prophet. As Kathleen Rain insightfully wrote, as one who speaks from and to the imagination, capital I, the words of the prophet are not obscure. He addresses that very faculty all share a universal conscience. Precisely in this lies the prophet's power. The soul shaping power of inspired poetry led Plato to make poetry together with music essential to education in his ideal republic making these arts the watchtower 
from which the guardians spread lawfulness through the city-state. But influence of poetry and music on the soul also gave Plato reservations about their use in the Republic. So in Book 3 of the Republic, he reduces Homer to ludicrous bathos by insisting on getting rid of all poetry that might encourage impressionable pupils to, dis to declaim it with undue fervor and identify with harmful, emo harmful emotions. We must remember <clears throat> that in the absence of canonical sacred text, the works of the poets occupied for the Greeks a position roughly equivalent to that of the Old and New Testaments in the Judo-Christian tradition or the Quran in Islam. This, however, did not prevent Plato from criticizing them with a trenchancy not found again until the Enlightenment on the grounds that these descriptions of unheroic displays of the unheroic displays of ignoble feelings is unacceptable to the philosophical mind and misleading portrayals of the gods were likely to corrupt the reader. At some point in late antiquity, we may mark the beginning of a schism between the spiritual and the rational in art in Western thought whose damaging effects continue to be all too apparent. The emphasis on reason and rationality is often said to have begun in the West with ancient Greek philosophy. However, it is essential to note that from the pre-Socratic beginnings through to the flowering of ancient Greek philosophy in the Neoplatonism of late antiquity, there is no presumption that reason and spirituality have any intrinsic conflict, quite the contrary. People have to read it, but it's there. But of course, you know, they don't teach these things anymore. And in universities today, whenever they want to cut anything because of the financial crisis, what do they cut first? Those things of the spirit and of the soul, as if education is, I don't want to get on this. <laughs> but, uh, at some point, as I said in integrity, you know, these things were not uh, so separate, really. Even, for instance, the mathematical philosophy of Pythagoras and his followers was integrated with spiritual disciplines aimed at realizing the divine. One ancient commentator said of the Pythagoreans, every distinction they lay down as to what should be done or not done aims at communion with the divine. This is their starting point. Their whole life is ordered with a view to following God, and it is the governing principle of their philosophy. Indeed, the poem of Parmenides presents what is probably the first recorded application of pure abstract logic to problems of metaphysics in the words of a goddess revealing the ultimate unity of being. Aristotle, too, generally considered to be the father of the science of logic, states plainly that deductive reasoning must always begin from some starting point and that the fundamental principles of all knowledge are known not through deductive reasoning but by insight. 
Now, this is a very important word. It's a technical word. In Arabic, it is al-basira. Al-basira is the eye of the heart, which is also the imagination with capital I. And the Greek word for it is nos. Finally, neoplatonists such as Platonius and Proclus extensively discussed the transcendence of discursive rationality, the ascension beyond reason to its spiritual source, insight or the spiritual intellect. In particular, Proclus, the last great head of the Platonic Academy, wrote, Discursive reasoning traverses and unfolds the measureless content of Nos by making articulate its concentrated intellectual insight and then gathers together again the things it has distinguished and refers them back to Nos. In addition to his mathematical, philosophical and theological works, Proclus also composed many moving hymns to the gods. Perhaps it was because of his integration of these many modes of knowledge that Thomas Taylor called Proclus the Coriaphus of all true philosophers. Did I pronounce this correctly? I don't know. Coriaphus. <laughs> Coriaphus. I don't know what it means. What does it mean? Uh, well, it, it means the wholeness, the, the unity. As a matter of fact, English is not my language. I apologize. <laughs> yeah, that's Greek. But, uh, yes. <laughs> Thus, the philosophical tradition that is generally considered to be the fountainhead of logic and deductive reasoning in the West is one in which deductive reasoning always was in the service of and taken as subordinate to direct insight into ultimate reality. Here, one also thinks of the Eastern Orthodox spirituality of the Desert Fathers, who sought to stand before God with a mind nos, that is, insight, that is, the mind of the heart. The confines of discursive reasoning must be transcended to behold ultimate truth. This was approached through altogether different routes in the festival of Dionysius, which was rooted in sacred intoxication, a rending up of the individual reasoning self to something greater and more numinous which could not be grasped by reasoning alone. However achieved, transcendence of reason is akin to the state of mind in which the true poet creates. For instance, in Yeats's dialogue of self and soul, the soul summons the self to transcend, to transcend thought. I summon to the winding ancient stair. Set all your mind upon the steep ascent, upon the broken crumbling battlement, upon the breathless starlit air, upon the star that marks the hidden pole. Fix every wandering thought upon that quarter where all thought is done. Who can distinguish darkness from the soul? This insight beyond thought from which poetry emerges was described by Robert Graves, not only a classical scholar and professor of poetry at Oxford, but a true poet in his own right. I say magic, since the act of composition occurs in a sort of trance, distinguishable from dream only because the critical faculties are not dormant 
but on the contrary more acute than normally. It is much the same with a poet when he completes a true poem. But often he wakes from the trance all too soon and is tempted to solve the remaining problems intellectually. Few self-styled poets have experienced the trance, but all who have know that to work out a line by an exercise of reason rather than by a deep-seated belief in miracle is highly unprofessional conduct. This act of willing self-surrender demands an abnegation of reason which is increasingly difficult for the human race in the post-enlightenment scientific age. This severance, tragic in its consequences for art as well as for human existence, is well described by Philip Sherard in his 1990 work, The Sacred in Life and Art. It is clear that if there is to be an authentic sacred art, then metaphysical knowledge and artistic expression must be intimately conjoined. For the whole purpose of both is, and must be, to reveal the truth. But whether it is our reason that conceptualizes the truth, or our imagination that images it, iconizes it, there is and can be no dichotomy between what our reason conceptualizes and what our imagination iconizes. Each supports the other. The images of our imagination are intelligible, the concepts of our reason are interpretable in terms of images, for our imagination and our reason run together in the same harness. This, as Sherard explains, calls for the operation of the supreme cognitive faculty in man, known to Yeats as the spiritual intellect, and to Dante as our noblest part, the part that most of all is the object of love rooted in us. Another stumbling block to reason is that poetry springing from such impulses may appear, as we have noted, scandalous in its disregard for convention, whether moral or aesthetic, or simply by its apparent naivety, as in certain poems by Blake or by E. E. Cummings. I thank you, God, for most this amazing day, for the leaping greenly spirits of trees and a blue dream of sky, and for everything which is natural, which is infinite, which is yes. I who have died am alive again today, and this is the sun's birthday. This is the birthday of life and of love and wings, and of the gay, great, happening illimitably earth. Experiencing the sacred does not require us to become childish and wholly unquestioning. Rather, it requires trust and the ability to open oneself to the promptings of a force which does not undermine reason but transcends it. The poet, therefore, does not seek proof to verify his experience of the sacred. That experience is proof in itself. And in poetry, he aims to express its content. 
As the theologian Leslie Weatherhead explains, the poet's insights are indubitable to him, not as the conclusion of a theorem of Euclid is indubitable, but as the beauty of a summer dawn is indubitable. And so, as prose is the language of everyday commerce, it is no accident that throughout the ages God has used poetry as the speech to reveal himself to humanity. By doing so, he imparted to it a means of conversing with him, carrying out his purposes of teaching, transmission and revelation. This concept is identified by Shelley in his description of the true poets as the unacknowledged legislators of the word, which echoes the words of the 9th century Arab poet Abu Tammam when he says, وَلَوْلَا خِلَالٌ سَنَّهَا الشِّعْرُ مَا دَرَى بُنَاتُ الْعُلَى مِنْ أَيْنَ تُؤْتَ الْمَكَارِمُ Without high virtues, by poetry laid down, no glorious deed by man can be achieved. As a matter of fact, Abu Tammam uses the same term, legislate, sanna. Yasinnu al-Qanin is to legislate law. But for the translation of poetry, the great revelations expressed in the sacred text of the Psalms, the Song of Songs, the poetic similes of the New Testament parables, and the Quran, the hidden words in seven valleys of Baha'u'llah, the Hindu Upanishads, the Zoroastrian Zendavusta, and the enigmatic verse of Lao Tzu's Tao Te Ching have provided not only a lasting spiritual and moral foundation for great religions, but an enduring source of poetic inspiration, enriching the many languages into which they have been translated with exquisite and expressive similes, powerful and penetrating aphorisms and mystic utterances capable of conveying profound truths beyond the compass of prose. In her discussion of Yeats's The Statues, Kathleen Rain observes that there are Gandhara that there are Gandhara Buddhist sculptures that seem to catch, as it were, the open eyes of the Greek Apollo in the very act of closing, of turning inwards from the Western scrutiny of an external to the Eastern contemplation of an inner world. But either way, whether the moral eyes are opened or closed. If the immortal eye of the imagination is opened, the vision of divinity is revealed in all things. The imagination is replenished, nourished on poetry, with the ultimate aim of attaining the vision that Thomas Carlyle expressed by saying that the universe is but one vast symbol of God, or what is described in the Corpus Hermeticum in the following, and do you say God is unseen? Hold your tongue. Who is more visible than God? This is why he made all things, so that through them all you might look on him. Such a vision has the power to awaken the inner conscience that enables one to regard all things as sacred and to treat other human beings with the respect that befits sanctity.
at the other extreme from seeing God in all things is the spiritually impoverished perception which Philip Sherrard called a wholly desacralized world. In the preface to the work cited above, Sherrard states that the concept of a completely profane world of a cosmos wholly, wholly desacralized is a comparatively recent invention of the human mind and the attempt to establish it as the norm governing the organization of social, political, and individual life, still more so, with self-destructive consequences. These are only gradually becoming apparent, requiring that we first blind our intellectual sight with this sacrilegious and hence, with sacrilegious and hence totally fraudulent vision of the physical universe. With, in other words, the cataract of modern science. We might compare this act of willful self-mutilation with a procedure proposed to Pierre Gint in Ibsen's poetic drama as the price of his acceptance as the son-in-law of the king of the trolls, the old man of the dove, and a life of ease and comfort, the deliberate scratching of the lens of his eye to distort his vision presenting ugliness as beauty and enable him to live in accordance with the troll's maxim, which is not to thine own self be true, but troll to thyself be enough. In the nick of time, he refuses to undergo this and narrowly escapes with his life and his eyesight, the integrity of his vision intact. Sherard continues, the attempt to recover the integrity of this thought and vision must begin with the removal of this opaque secretion. This can lead to, the re to a reversal of the present suicidal flow of things only if it is a consequence of and accompanied by the reawakening in ourselves of a consciousness of the meaning and presence of the sacred in all its manifestations. It is the task of the true poet, like Eliot's wounded surgeon, to assist in his operation, freeing the human mind from its thraldom to false norms, to rediscover the sacred imminent in all creation, to reconcile reason and imagination, which need never have been sundered, and to recover for themselves one of the most ancient functions of the poet, as of the Celtic bard whose craft the product of long apprenticeship as well as divine inspiration possessed the power to blast or bless, not only that of a legislator or guardian, but of a healer restoring to a sick, fractured world inner peace, balance and wholeness. It involves a quest lasting a lifetime for wisdom that costs all that a man hath and may lead the poet through unexpected ways which he overlooked or actively rejected earlier. As in the case of W. H. Auden's late conversion to Episcopalian path of Christianity, the purpose of such a calling is summed up in T.S. Eliot's sifting and picking for the truth remaining intact amid the broken images of the wasteland and his final prayer for truth in the concluding section of Ash Wednesday. Suffer us not to mock ourselves with falsehood. Teach us to care 
and not to care. Teach us to sit still. I'm, get, I'm getting to the end. I have dwelt so far on the work of the great poets of the past. And it would be unfair to the contemporary poets of today to have kept the sacred flame, who have kept the sacred flame of that eternal word alive, the word of the spirit and of the sacred, and who share the same passion and the same universal message with Shakespeare, Milton, Shelley, Blake, Tennyson, Yeats, and most recently, Kathleen Rain. I'm thinking of the poetry of my friend Francis Warner. I have known Francis for almost half a century. Our shared interest in the poet William Butler Yeats brought us together and ever since my meeting with him in 1960 in Sligo. We have built a friendship that has withstood the test of time. I've translated some of Francis Warner's poetry into Arabic and I've also had the great honor of writing a chapter on his poetry in Tim Prentke's Festschrift in honor of Francis being awarded the Messing International Award for Literature in 1972. As early as that date, I was most impressed by the way in which Francis has triumphantly blended tradition with modernity, spirituality with practicality, and brought us in spirit nearer to God. Francis Warner, perhaps the most English of the English poets of today, in his message of faith and universal love, speaks not only to the English-speaking world, but to the world at large and in whatever language his poetry is translated. In 1985, Francis Warner's collected poems, 1960-1984, was published by Colin Smythe Limited, and 28 volumes of his poetry and plays have been published to date. Five of his verse plays have recently been, or are being, performed in the United States. One can only gesture towards such an output in a lecture. But what pervades all his poetry is a sense of the sacred, whether explicitly in such plays as moving reflections, which concern the Roman Emperor Tiberius and Mary Magdalene's meeting with him, or light shadows on St. Paul's imprisonment in Nero's house and Paul's trial before the Emperor, or indeed in Warner's love poetry, where that sense of the sacred pervades. Suddenly sensitive that we are alone, each movement still new in your arm or eye, eons and civilizations cannot own again that you are holy and unique. His earliest poetry is strongly neoplatonic. Set the weary artist free, sailing alone on the materialistic sea, battered by vulgarity, caverned in mortality, sinew this bone. His first book, Perinia, 1962, is an epilion or minor epic on the legend of Cupid and Psyche, a dream vision in Spenserian stanzas with a lyric climax closing. And with her song still ringing in my ears, I woke beside the Box Hill stepping stones. A bonfire flamed and crackled cheerfully scenting the air with smoke, till in my bones I knew that I had seen reality lying upon that bank beneath the rowan tree. A later poem came to him when he was 
stuck at the traffic lights in the center of Oxford. I saw a shining lady stand in fields I could not recognize. Caught unawares in a strange land, I stared at where her path would rise across a nettled wilderness, shadowing ruin's emptiness. And all my heart was filled with light to see how she was safely held. The stones themselves stirred with delight and tears behind my eyelids welled. But when they cleared once more, I found the Oxford traffic all around. <laughs> Later, with much travelling in the Middle East with his young daughter, his neoplatonism widens. Here are his rubaiyat. Georgina is his little daughter. Ah, Georgie, you and I have travelled far to where the crescent meets the morning star, from Citadel of David to the Sphinx, from Balbec's sands to Karnak's Amun-Ra. And when the master of our fates decides to show the glory that our frail flesh hides, one grove, one river in that paradise will be our mirage where the Bedouin rides. This range includes the Greek poets such as Pindar, whom he brought on stage in 1988 in Healing Nature. Man's life is just one day, now here, now gone, a shadow's dream. But when this darkness falls, a strong sun shines for them below, where fields of golden fruit and scarlet roses gleam through the bright incense at immortal walls. He has recently, he has recently written the words for six anthems, the last for the Feast of Christ the King, will be performed by King's College Choir Cambridge on November 22nd in King's Chapel. This will be read by my distinguished friend Tom. But just before that, to sum up what I have been illustrating in various extracts, Tom will read the words which Francis Warner has chosen for his epitaph. Ah, gentle friends, who stay your thoughtful pace where my bones find their final resting place. May flowering nature's endless harmony bring joy to you. It gave me melody, and now this poet's voice, by nature's law, calls up the brave and beautiful no more. Take you the path we English poets trod and loving nature, find a living God. Anthem for Christ the King, Sunday next before Advent. Not in a crown of gold, but with the stars, with oceans as his coronation drums, not in a crown of thorns, but lightning's wars, the maker of the universe, Christ comes. Yet to the heart of suffering he plums, the past torments us, what's to come dismays. His understanding pity draws our praise. The resurrected Christ, king of creation, whose flags are branches, 
coach, a donkey's trot, who fills relationships with love's elation, who chose straw in a stable for his cot, answers our anguish as our bodies rot. Lord, in your kingdom reach us through our vice. Today you'll be with me in paradise. He turns our royal pageants upside down, subverts earth's power structures into dust. Blessed bride and bridegroom close the general's frown, for dew of youth lasts not by laws but trust, and open homes dissolve the beggar's crust. The margin is the centre. Losing all, we find grace comes back like a waterfall. Magnificence, ruler of seas and shores, music and joy of life, whose flaming force turned timid men to be world conquerors. Your spirit's light reflects back to its source, praying within us, healing our remorse. Come, Holy Trinity, your kingdom one, lover, beloved, and love itself in one. So we, we started with that marvelous poem, the Universal Prayer, Catholic poet, 17th century. We ended with Francis Warner, contemporary poet who's still with us, writing a poem on Christ. But notice even here, there is a universal note, which says this, regardless who we are, where we come from, we have been created by the one God. According to the Bible, both the Old and the New Testament, and the Quran, and many other traditions, God breathed into us from his own soul. St. Paul speaks of the human temple as a sacred temple, because in every one of you resides a portion of the divine. What is my duty when I stand before you? That's it. Thank you very much indeed for that uh, tremendously he inspiring <laughs> speech and indeed to Tom for his wonderful and uh, uh, evocative uh, reading. You've um, reminded us, I think, of the importance of the word and, and also defined our um, impulse to try and capture its expression. So that was a really very thought-provoking uh, hour spent and it went by so quickly. Uh, we do have some time for some questions. Um, the recording of this, or rather the, this machine here, is recording the, the, the talk. And I've been asked to uh, relay the questions to it rather than to Sahail. He can hear you perfectly, but this isn't quite so good. So uh, forgive me if I um, repeat your question. For my sake, please try and make them simple, not for Sahail. <laughs> Would anyone like to ask any questions? I'm totally amazed with the 
I can't find the right words right now, but it's not only the spirituality that some of us are fortunate enough to feel only at times, very rare moment, but it's the feeling that is always there with us and it's part of the greater spirituality. And that's what I get from this talk. Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum assalam. Thank you. I must apologize after this recording. I'm always terrified of being recorded. But I must apologize. Now, I, I suffer from two ailments. One is my eyesight is not perfect. But I can assure you that so far the insight is intact. <laughs> and I can deal with problems of, of, of sight, really. The second thing, when I first arrived, I did something foolish because I should have listened to my wife. And when I don't listen to my wife, I pay a very heavy price. <laughs> and say obedience of God is mandatory. I think obedience of wife is survival. <laughs> so I apologize for both things that I'm sitting down. At the same time, when I read, uh, I get a bit confused with the words. But I'm still trying to do it. Thank you very much. And if I could read that well with your eyesight, I'd be very, very fortunate indeed. Any other thoughts? Oh, there are, there are many, but I, 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 I'm not qualified to speak about them. But Francis Warner, I have known over the years, I've studied his poetry, I've translated his work. I'm sure that um, Brendan Kennelly, who's an Irish, Anglo-Irish poet, is a man of tremendous uh, spirituality, and he, his work is, without any doubt, an example of the sacred. And occasionally you find this in um, Geoffrey Hill, uh, he's also a very distinguished English poet who, who's just recently, uh, Faith and Style, wrote a book on Faith and Style and, and, and argues the point that when Faith and Style come together, you see, and they enrich one another, you have the greatest poetry. So there are, but, you know, I, 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 one has to really, uh, there's so much. To, to, to learn and uh, and poetry is uh, an art that is not easily easily studied. But students come and say, ah, this is rather difficult. I said, if it's not difficult, you shouldn't be reading it. <laughs> you know, of course, we have to work hard at a poem, and then it it means something now. It will mean something completely different. Well, not completely different, but would have a different meaning and interpretation for a different age. It, it, this is immortal. What did Ibn Arabi say? Oh, please. No, 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 no. I was going to ask, what do you read in the poetry of, of uh, those poets who, are not, uh, who did not believe in, in God? I mean, Omar Khayyam being one. Well, you got the question. I got the question. You got the question. Maybe you should. <laughs> no. Well, who? Uh, what, what do you think of poets who did not believe in God as Omar Khayyam? Well, you know, everybody thinks that Shelley was an atheist. 
At least, this is the reputation he built for himself, right? But how could he be an atheist? The one who says, the one remains. What one? Who are you talking about? Of course, you read the poetry of Shelley, you cannot come out except this is a firm believer. He did not believe in the rituals and the interpretations of those who want to play the role of God. Oh, there are many of them, mm -hmm. right? That's it. People can ask me, you see, I don't know, it's not a secret, I'm a Baha'i, and what? Uh, tell me, what is your, why are you a Baha'i? I said, listen, I, for me, this is the right path. I have chosen it. You work hard, find your own. <laughs> ah, I'm not going to be responsible for you. See? I am not responsible for anybody as far as his soul is concerned, but I'm responsible for everybody as far as his well-being, food, education is concerned. Of course, it's a different matter. This, uh, this was the, this, the young lady, very beautiful young lady. My, uh, my wife allows me to say so. Uh, very nice. She started arguing. She said, I don't believe in anything. My God. All right, fine. I said, but you are so nice, <laughs> so wonderful. Do you eat? Yes. Do you sleep? Yes, of course I want to sleep. You, you, you drink enough water? Yes. You look after yourself? Yes. Yeah. Why? I love life. I said, well, call yourself a lifeist. <laughs> Simple. Yes. Yes. I have to apologize for coming very late, so no. I may have certainly missed a lot of the talk, but the question that I would like, um, if it hasn't been answered before, um, has there been examples of poets working their mind into the um, uh, unity between uh, religion, science, and literature? Absolutely, I mean, there are... Okay. I mean, is there, are there any salient examples? So yeah. are there examples of, I, I gave of poets who some in marry the, yeah, yeah. the material world with the... Yeah, the exactly. Yes. So the, the Greek poets did that. I mean, the Aristotle, Plato, Platonius, all of these. P Pythagoras, right? the greatest mathematician the world has known. You know, sacred geometry and all that. What is this? So, unfortunately, with the... the with science, with the machines, <laughs> with our uh, belief that we are able to change what God has created is our undoing. We have to live with nature, you see? And this is the theme and the, the, the writings of His Royal Highness, the Prince of Wales. Right, David? Of course, he's the authority there and Ian here. Okay, that, that there are three words. That's balance, you know them, yes? Order and harmony. You can't do without them, you see? And there is the sense of the holy as well. Everything, uh, what's it, Blake's famous line? Everything that lives is holy. Of course. Yeah. And then truth. What is truth? None of us has possession of the whole truth. We only have possession of an aspect of the truth. If we have the possession of all the truth, we, we are God. We are we God. Impossible, you see. So it's an aspect of the truth. 
and the paths that lead us to that goal are many in number, different. It is Ibn Arabi who wrote these marvelous lines, إِنْ لَاحَ الْبَرْقُ شَرْقِيًّا لَحَنَّ إِلَى الشَّرْقِ وَإِنْ لَاحَ غَرْبِيًّا لَحَنَّ إِلَى الْغَرْبِ إِنَّ غَرَامِي بِالْمَرِيقِ وَلَمْحِهِ وَلَيْسَ غَرَامِي بِالْأَمَاكِنِ وَالتُرَبِي If lightning were to come from the east, he would turn his face to the east. If it were to come from the west, he would turn his face to the west. And then he reminds his listener, my love is for the lightning and its gleam, not from whence it comes. The truth, no matter who says it, where it comes from, it is the truth. Yes. Um, I don't know if you're at all familiar with J.R.R. Tolkien. Um, if you um, have read the Silmarillion and uh, the Book of Beginnings, um, he talks of the god of gods, Iluvatar, who um, produced seven progeny and I forget what he calls them, but they sang creation into being in poetic form. Um, also, you know, the, he, he also called the book The Lord of the Rings an exercise in semantic aesthetics. And also the ring that has the power, has the power through the verse that is written upon it. But the greatest paradox for me about um, Tolkien um, is that he's written the most bought book of all time, um, and it's a great work. For me, he's uh, an avatar of the quill. However, the literary establishment, and Harold Bloom included, <laughs> really can't stand him. Of course. So you have this paradox of the soul being touched in a global way through this work, and yet the rational mind dismisses it. And Harold Bloom is not my yeah. favorite, yeah. but but this book became so uh, popular in America, and set really the standard for other people to judge. And my argument is, I don't, you know, there is there's a wonderful saying in Arabic: is if you believe in God and the Day of Judgment, speak the good word or remain silent. I didn't want to say anything about Harold Brook, but I just said, hey, he could have mentioned these great, you know, teachers of humanity. I forgot them completely, you see, and he concentrated only on the West. You see, I, I, I myself believe that there is a schism between West, East and West. And unless we bridge this gap and bring the Western, you see, the West has made a tremendous contribution in looking out. The East has made a great contribution in looking in. We need both. <laughs> we can't do without, you see. So where is the healing? It's to come. We have really done injustice to each other. You see. I am one of those people who says, well, I think it is my duty. I can't be responsible for anyone else. To honor every human being, regardless of where, what, how. I think all of us have to do that. There was one question there, somebody. Yes. To that on the talking, um, I think it really is the responsibility of parents to read to their children. I mean, I have my youngest who reads Lord of the Rings. I don't know how many times he's read it. But he thinks, I mean, Tolkien is one of his heroes. He actually went to Oxford to walk in the footsteps of where his colleagues were. 
children are exposed at an early age to these concepts through poetry and good literature. I think, you know, yeah. they, they don't care what Harold Bloom says because he's too godly to hear it. Yes. So, I mean, that's something. Yes. So the importance of exposing children at an early age to this, which doesn't go on half enough. Well, not at all, really. Yeah. You know, I mean, this, this should be done. But the whole educational system has to, has, has to be revolutionized. I don't know. I do, what can you do? Just mm-hmm. a short question, sorry. Um, you, you mentioned uh, people such as Jeffrey Hill yes. and, uh, earlier on. <coughs> will know it's but what I'm saying is this Francis Warner available here easily because I haven't really um, heard him that much already yes. so like so is Francis Warner available here absolutely yes absolutely. I mean is he that well known because I haven't actually well, read uh, and things about him either anyway so yeah, yeah, Francis Warner from is. the library well you know a poet is a poet yeah I know and Eliot said in the kingdom of God, there is no distinction amongst the poets. <laughs> Everyone has his contribution to make, really. And of course, uh, Miss Hilary Freeman here is herself a very distinguished poet. I included her in, in the favorite love poems of the world. Marvelous poem. I wish I had included more. Next time, I, I've learned my lesson. I will, I will include more. But there are. Yeah, the, the poets are poets, you see. Now, how do you judge them? We can't judge them. Time. The only judge is time. Because Don John, one of the... John Don, sorry. John Don, one of the, one of the, great, one of the seven great poets in the English language, was forgotten for four centuries until somebody wrote the metaphysical something about this poetry, and it was Eliot, really, that discovered it. And finally, we know who Don, John Donne is. So the poet is judged by time and by expressing successfully that universal conscience which we all have and which continue. Now, one last thing I would like to say is that the greatest poets, without exception, are universalists. Dante, Goethe, Shakespeare. You want to translate, define, summarize Western culture, European culture, these three names. It's not Einstein, it's not Newton, it's not Darwin, it's not Freud, it's none of these. These three names. It's the same in Arabic literature. It's the same in Persian literature. Jalaluddin Rumi, a Persian poet, born in Afghanistan, speaks Persian goes to live in Turkey, is the most popular poet in America today. Ah, what's happening? Ah, the universal conscience. We have time for just one more question, and, and it's just here. Do you have any explanation uh, for the Quran criticism not to use the word condemnation of the poets? Oh, yes. And Plato's also oh, yes, yes, criticism yes. or condemn uh, uh, them. Yes, 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 absolutely. So the question... The poets that lived immediately before the time of the Prophet Muhammad were engaged in panegyrics that praised and promoted 
warfare. That is, uh, tribe against tribe. And it became so fractured, Arab <coughs> society, that for the new religion, in the same way that in Ireland, the new religion, Catholicism, <coughs> also affected the writing of poetry. So uh, Plato, as well, it was the power they had in uh, enforcing this. But on the other hand, how many times in the Quran does he speak of this, what he calls as sihrul halal, lawful magic? What is sihrul halal? It is the poetic form of the Quran. The Quran itself is a new form of Arabic poetry. I'm sure Ms. Layla Tanus Dalton is an expert on Arabic culture and civilization, and she is our teacher. She knows that. But this, this was, and there was, but then, here the Prophet says, as is the hadith which I quoted, that under, underneath the throne of God, you see, lies treasures, the, the keys to which are the tongues of poets. So it was specifically this tribal, fanatic, fanatic, really zealous, extremist voice that the poet had to put an end to. But then later, uh, the, the uh, flowering of Arabic poetry, an explosion of Arabic poetry, so that at the time of Harun al-Rashid, that was called the Golden Age, and the greatest of all, al-Mutanabbi, who said, right, I gave, uh, my song gave eyes to the blind and ears to the deaf. So, the poetry, it, it goes through stages, really. But it is, the, the, of course, it's dangerous. Sometimes it, you can mislead. Well, <laughs> look, religion has come to unify humanity. It has come to make us better human beings, to love one another, to share the bounties of this world. What do we do? We create barriers. We push people out. Instead of being inclusive, we become exclusive. And this is what the world is suffering from today. How? Of course. And this can be promoted in different ways. So poetry could, because it has this power, be evil, like a religion, can be good, but it can be evil. Of course, when religion is the way we see it today, it is no longer religion, it's politics. Don't call it religion. What Eliot says? Eliot, T.S. Eliot. He says, he who serves God runs greater sorrow of sin, or risk of sorrow and sin. For the great cause they serve, they end up serving them. So, Hill, thank you very much indeed. Um, you've reminded us that poets really do change the world. Um, I suppose because, as you've tried to explain today, um, they work from the inside out. So, let's go back to poetry. And we'll find all our anchors there. Thank, thank you, you very, very much. much.